There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, it's been raining for the longest time and it continues to rain. As you'll know if you're listening to this from inside of London, the wettest place within the M25 that you could possibly be is in the southwest of town. Well, have a guess where we're going today. And it's Valentine's Day, so what could be nicer than going to have a look at some flowers? Well, going and looking at some flowers indoors. It's the 14th of February 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a stone throw from your front door. I must say that I wasn't very much looking forward to this. I knew that I was coming down to southwest London today, and then I'm, I'm looking at the news on the television, and it's saying that southwest London is completely underwater, and that I need uh, scuba diving apparatus to approach. So far, so good. We're at Cheswick House and Gardens, and the rain is coming down. We're under cover, and we're going to be discussing the, uh, the grounds and, and the cover as well in just one moment. With me, Claire O'Brien, the director of Chiswick House and Gardens Trust, and John Watkins, who is the head of gardens and landscape at English Heritage. Hello, you both. Hello. Hello. Where to start? I, I suppose we've got to start by describing the surroundings. And uh, I've done a lot of work over in East London recently. And one of the first things that struck me as we came down to southwest London is the sheer amount of space going on here. And also the fact that there is greenery. I remember greenery. What a, a beautiful place it is. And um, perhaps we could discuss the, uh, the grounds and the architecture in the, in the very uh, broadest terms, Claire. Well, if we just start with where we're actually standing, we're in an 1813 Grade 1 listed conservatory designed for the 6th Duke of Devonshire. But we'll talk about the context of who lived here and why these buildings were built in a, in a moment, if I may. But I just want to say we're under a sort of arched, beautiful arched ceiling with wonderful cornicing, which you wouldn't necessarily expect when you walked into a conservatory, as it has a portico to sort of welcome and prepare your guests for the wonders they're about to see. Um, but I'll hand over to John to start to give you a bit of context as to what is Chiswick House and Gardens. Yes, uh, because at the moment I have very little idea. I came in by the tradesman's entrance and I'm not quite sure what the paths that lead to and from this reception area, what they lead to and what the overall scope of the place is. Well, you're in one of these very special um, pearls that are part of the necklace that is the River Thames. And what, what a beautiful start. <laughs> That's a fantastic metaphor. Right the way along the Thames, which is a, a wonderful, very easy waterway, many big families set up their country homes that were close enough um, to, their, to their London houses. And um, uh, Lord Burlington... Um, moved to uh, uh, Chiswick in the early 18th century and um, and created this wonderful uh, garden that we've got here and of course the, uh, uh, the wonderful Chiswick house which was um, uh, a wonderful set piece uh, uh, property 
Now, when you say he moved here, uh, I must just check that I've got this right, because I read somewhere that one of the purposes of this place was to show off his art. Now, was he sort of living down here all the time, or was this for special occasions only? Um, Well, he had a Burlington house in Piccadilly, and uh, he had um, other estates as well. So, I mean, I think the advantage um, of of Chiswick, it was um, a bit of countryside near London, and uh, it was also close to um, other friends that also had uh, estates, uh, small estates, States along the Thames. So we'll map out the estate uh, in just a second, but maybe it's worth lingering for a second on that. We're, we're sort of talking late 1720s or, or there, thereabouts, aren't we? That's right, and he, uh, and he was here until the uh, 1750s. Um, but I mean, what is quite um, why he was important as far as the landscape was concerned, um, working with, with William Kent, what really happened here at Chiswick, it was that big jump from formal gardens to informality. So um, it said that uh, William Kent uh, jumped the fence and saw that um, all landscape was a garden, and this is really what happened here at Chiswick. And so this is why garden enthusiasts and garden historians from all around the world come and visit Chiswick as one of these uh, set pieces. All right, OK, so this is maybe moving away from that sort of rigid formality that Pope talks about. That's exactly right. And, of course, um, Pope was one of his friends, and they used to have uh, 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 dinner and festivities here as well. So you can imagine the discussions and arguments over how you should present your, uh, your landscape, your architecture, and your art. Well, I think maybe some of those historical figures are worth mentioning as well because you've got prestigious neighbours here in terms of heritage homes. Who else have we got in the area that's noteworthy? Well, we've got Hogarth. Hogarth uh, moved to Chiswick at a similar time to Lord Burlington, well, when Lord Burlington was visiting here regularly. Um, And his house is literally two minutes outside the grounds. Um, And Hogarth and Burlington were not exactly the best of friends, but they still did see each other and converse, and uh, Hogarth has drawn in the gardens, I do believe. Possibly. We don't. Possibly. <laughs> or he's certainly drawn views of Chiswick. Um, what, what was going on then? Was there, uh, did this area suddenly become fashionable for some reason? It, it goes back to John's uh, comment about the Thames, uh, that if you, if you were an aristocrat in particular and you had a large house in the middle of town, you'd want somewhere which was an easy weekend retreat and not perhaps over a day's travel. So quite a number of houses were built in this area because it was very accessible to London, flat, easy building, and all around where we are now, there were large houses. What actually happened in this estate was that after Lord Burlington, uh, we move on to the Dukes of Devonshire because Lord Burlington's daughter married a future Duke. Um, After that, they actually acquired a couple of estates either side of the estate they already had. And the the houses that were here were were even earlier than the 17th century. So originally there was a big Jacobean house on this site Um, And then Lord Burlington built his villa, which was then added to by subsequent Dukes of Devonshire. Um, And the old house was knocked down. As is always happening, people extend, they add wings, or they rebuild. So to what extent, and when I say this, I'm thinking of how the centre of London sort of expanded. So you, you had the city of London, the walled part, and then you start to, things start to develop in Westminster, and then the next big phase of development really is filling in the gap between the two. We're conscious, of course, of the uh, royal palaces further upriver. Was this a moment when that gap starts to be filled up? Is it prestigious because of those links in some way, or is there something else going on there? I think the Thames is what was important here, and the fact that um, if we think of um, transport... Well, it, from central London it takes an hour to get here now because of the slow traffic if we could zoom down the Thames it'd be even quicker so I think transport was, uh, was the absolute key thing all around here most of this area was kitchen gardens this was providing the food the vegetables for London because you had these uh, flat very fertile soils and so that's what made this area sort of quite 
um, quite key in that respect. Oh, that's really exciting. Okay, so I know a lot of the uh, the street names around the city of London reflect the regular arrival of animals and chickens and all, all sorts of things like that. I suppose we need to be checking for some of the routes in from the the southwest and see if they tie up with those kind of farming ideas. Yes, quite right. And of course, a later development at Chiswick, um, when the uh, the sixth Duke, Duke of Devonshire uh, took over running um, the place, he bought the next door estate which belonged to the, fa- uh, the Fox family. And standing where we are today, we're actually in the direct axis between the center, what was the centre of their old house um, and their, their kitchen garden, which um, we've uh, fully restored here. So that's a wonderful thing to come and see in the, in the summer. And the other thing that he did was he was um, very, very keen on horticulture and um, he was, I think, one of the first presidents of the, of the, um, the Horticultural Society, later become the Raw Horticultural Society. Um, he purchased and leased land to uh, the Horticultural Society for them to set up their research gardens. And what became the Royal Horticultural Society were there until, I think, about um, uh, 1910. They had their first shows in the lands that they were, they were renting, uh, which, of course, now are, um, have become the Chelsea Flower Show. But the first Royal Horticultural Society shows took place in these, in these gardens. There's a lot to dig into. No, I can't say things like dig into in a gardening uh, episode, no. One, one of the things that's striking me, though, is you, you talk about the axis, and I'm standing right in the middle of the uh, portico now. As I uh, look, do, you, do we know which uh, direction that would be on the compass? Which that's, way? That's, uh, we're sort of looking at the kitchen garden. It's kind of north-west. North, northwest, OK. So what I'm looking down, there's a long path here. There are a pair of gates, posts either side, big uh, elaborate things with orbs on top a nice set of gates and then we can see the path continues further on into a what looks like a walled garden behind us and we'll talk about the structure uh, just here as well but but the path continues and it's very very symmetrical very ordered what surprised me i suppose is the idea that this represents a, an informality ah you see because <laughs> um chiswick really for uh, over many centuries led fashion i said earlier how that it led the fashion away from formality to, to informality and then after Burlington's death his family took that further and made the garden even more informal later generations and then all fashions go in cycles um, the sixth duke he was one of the very first people to introduce um, a formal parterre back into gardens and he employed Lewis Kennedy um, who was a very fashionable designer at that time to design um, a formal layout of a garden and as part of our re- uh, recent restoration um, we restored all the marginal beds with these um, uh, ropes with roses growing on them because we managed to find an early plan and so this is in a way very unfashionable when they started but it then became fashionable and he then built a a wall going east-west on one side he built a conservatory on on the back side of it he built um, his back sheds and those back sheds to to any gardener the shed is the um, is the sort of the workshop of the garden that's where everything really happens when are we talking by the way Uh, we're we're again 1712 is is that period and um, what is so interesting about uh, this particular conservatory where we're standing is um, is because it was built for the duke of devonshire and I'm sure you'll know of uh, Chatsworth, which was one of his other properties, where there are wonderful glass houses, and they had a, a giant glass house they later built, built by, by Paxton. So this was somebody who was really building serious glass houses. And um, technology was developing very, very fast. And at that time, they were putting um, probably more ingenuity into de- uh, developing heating systems and ventilation systems for plants than they were for, for their houses. So, um, and so within this one structure, we've got the whole history of glass house heating and ventilation. And so there's very few places with that left. Um, so um, part of our research was doing archaeology here, here and um, finding out how that worked. I'm enjoying the enthusiasm that you exude as well. By the way, talking about ventilation, the uh, listener who's conscious of the gusts of wind every few moments will be interested to know that we are, in fact, indoors right now. 
only just, but we are indoors. Uh, it's a beast of a day, and the rain has really started to uh, lash down outside. I want to come to you uh, in a moment, John, and find out the practical consequences of this kind of weather on some of the uh, delicate garden work that's, that's going on. Um, but could we talk uh, maybe for a moment, Claire, about the house itself? And uh, we're, we're not there, and it's not within view as far as I can see. What is the house about? I know it's uh, sort of neo-Palladian in style, isn't it? Neo-Palladian, or you could also say neoclassical. So Lord Burlington, as a young man, went on the grand tour twice. And, of course, your listeners will appreciate that when uh, young gentlemen went on the grand tour, they discovered the wonderful art, particularly of Italy as well as France and um, Germany. But Italy always struck them. And when they arrive in Rome, they are transported by the wonderful classical architecture of the Roman Empire. And this very much happened to Lord Burlington. He also discovered the uh, skills and the buildings of Palladio, who um, had been building 200 years previously. And he cleverly managed to buy these great volumes that Palladio had written about how to design these Palladian villas, um, very much based on classical principles. So he came back, he moved into what was the old house, the Jacobean house here at Chiswick, as well as, as already has been mentioned by John, living in his other places, especially in um, uh, Burlington House Piccadilly. And he was a very talented young man. He could, he could design, he could direct, he was very creative. And he wanted to build the perfect classically proportioned villa. And that is what he did. It is, uh, when visitors come nowadays, it is what they would think a surprisingly small house. However, it wasn't designed, it's believed, uh, to be the main residence. It was designed to be on very much classical principles, wonderful views inside and outside, very elegant proportioned rooms, beautiful stonework um, and uh, plaster work. And he used it to see his friends and to have his library and to contemplate. But where they slept and where they ate was next door. And then what happened uh, over time when... um, when the 5th Duke of Devonshire inherited, he then built two big wings onto the small villa. So it became a more practical home where there were kitchens and there were bedrooms. Now, the visitor nowadays would not see those wings because in the 1950s, uh, those wings were taken away because they weren't part of the original build. So they weren't the sort of the pure early Georgian house. And those wings were taken away and we're back to the perfectly formed villa. Mm. And it was, has been a very important and groundbreaking building from its day. It, it's, it's inspired many other stately homes around this country. It's inspired many buildings in America. Uh, and some, some people say it was an inspiration for the building of the White House. Yeah, well, lots of Hellenic stuff going on in, uh, in D.C., of course. One of the buildings that uh, keeps coming up in my mind when you're talking is John Soane's house. He took on board some of the same influences, but, of course, he had great constraints of space, uh, which don't seem to be so much of a problem here. Now, as far as I can see, he was incredibly ingenious in how he manipulated light and broke through different stories of, of the building that he had to hand there as, I think, a three-house uh, knock-through. Was the same sort of ingenuity going on here? Uh, yes, I would have thought so. I mean, it's it used the sort of the best um, craftsmen to make make the internal details. I mean, the house is full of wonderful details, which are well worth visiting. But just on John Soane, yes, he had his Lincoln in Fields house, um, which I hope many of your listeners have visited. But he also had a, a country house just close to here, um, ah. Pittshanger Pittshanger Manor. And it's it's in a it's in a rather dilapidated state, sadly, and hopefully it'll be restored. Um, but that was his country house, and again, it was a it was is a neoclassical building. As the rain pours down above us, we're protected by the beautiful roof of the conservatory here, and we're looking out on the gardens. Now, I'm, I'm wondering. Um, 
and maybe this because your, your brief is a, not just this garden but a, a, a wide range of uh, gardens yes, uh, yes English heritage gardens and what's the effect of the weather we've been having it, it can only be deleterious it can be serious for, for trees this um, strong winds um, uh, cause a fair bit of branch drop um, and it's always very sad when we lose trees we've got used to for many years um, but it's, it's um, flooding and waterlogging and um, I mean, the best thing a gardener can do on wet ground is actually to leave it you can cause more damage to wet ground by walking on it and trying to cultivate it so um, it's um, holding us back at a time when we want to be starting to get on um, working in the garden um, also I mean gardens like this at Chiswick um, it's very level ground, um, silty, sandy, sandy ground, and the water levels are very high at the moment. Um, and there's not nowhere really for the water to go. So um, yes, it's it's quite moist. Ah, so this is you can tell I'm not much of a gardener. This isn't just water. When I imagine the the Thames breaking its banks, I have an idea of a little wave splashing in short. But actually, the water's rising up from the water table. Isn't yes, it? yes, the water table is is, is very high at the moment. Hmm, okay. and what about I think that's in gardens across the country. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, as, uh, being a Somerset gardener probably isn't a great deal of uh, fun just at the moment. What's the scope of the gardening work here? Is this, uh, how big is the team? How does it fit together? Um, uh, the team here, we've got um, a core team of, um, of staff, of, of gardeners. We've got um, uh, three garden staff. Um, we also have um, uh, uh, lots of volunteers who are absolutely key to, uh, to managing the gardens. And we also have a con- contract team who um, uh, um, do the grass and empty the bins and, uh, and do the sort of easy, measurable work. Oh, right. OK, so there's a, f- a few people who sort of intimately understand the place and then some of the simpler, laborious jobs, they're sort of outsourced. That's right, yes, yes. Is that a normal model for uh, a place of this sort? Um, a variety of um, gardens will be managed in different ways, but that's um, quite a good practical way of doing it. Well, we should talk certainly about the restoration that's been going on and is ongoing, a huge amount of investment in the place just recently. Uh, But perhaps we should say something about the festival that is coming up in March, because that's, uh, and I'm I'm hoping the weather's going to clear up for that. At the moment, the conservatory that we're in is in a sort of a preparatory stage and is awaiting some of the floral arrivals that will appear just before the festival starts. But can we say something about what that festival is and, and why it's here? Well, it's called the Camellia Festival, and I think it's all in the name because uh, this conservatory that we're in is full of these most beautiful camellias. Um, Before we go a step further, I'm not a gardener. I don't know what a camellia is. Is it a tree, a bush, a flower? (laughs) (laughs) John, what is a camellia? Uh, A camellia is an evergreen shrub that um, in spring gets um, uh, covered in large rose-like blooms that could be um, white, uh, pink or red. And um, we're very fortunate... Um, here to have some very very uh, early introductions and um, I think a lot of visitors would be rather surprised to find camellias in a glasshouse because most gardeners would have camellias growing outside but um, this is an interesting aspect of history because um, from when camellias really became fashionable and that was really from the 1820s onwards they became very very fashionable um, anyone who had a garden, garden uh, and, and, and had a glass house they grew camellias and um, because they came from Japan and they were thought to be very very tender and they needed the protection um, of a glass house so, so the same sort of aesthetics that would attend orchids that's right yes and um, there was lots of breeding and so the um, all the big houses would be in competition with each other to to get the the biggest double flower or the purest white or the the best pink um, or the earliest flower or the latest flower something that's um, that's different and um, all the um, uh, the owners would be getting their, their head gardeners to, to breed these flowers and then take them to the Royal Horticultural Society's flower show in the spring where they'd uh, compete on a level playing field or so that's they thought. And, and is that the model for what we've got going on here this much? Uh, well... No, by the looks... <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the deal with the camellias here? The, de- the deal with the camellias here is that uh, they were planted nearly 200 years ago and uh, we still have the original uh, 
well, they look more like trees now, but they, of course they would have originally been shrubs. And that is what's so extraordinary, that they are one of the first camellias to come over. Uh, they were planted in a glasshouse, as John has said, because people didn't know uh, that they could survive outside. And they are still thriving and we have got one particular branch of camellia called the middle mist red which is just behind me Uh, and the this beautiful flower that you're looking at now there is only one other of its type in the world and that is in New Zealand and so it is extremely special and rare and also very beautiful how, how has it come to be so rare? There may have been a number of them available in the 1820s, um, but this one was planted here and has remained here. Um, the one in New Zealand, I don't know whether it's a, a cutting of this one, but the International Camellia Society found it on one of their trips there. And so that's how we know there are, there are two in the world. So I, I, OK, I don't know if my mind should be going down this road, but the, f- the first thing, when I discovered that this, this thing is so rare, what's to stop somebody from sneaking a pair of secateurs in and uh, having a cutting? The fact that such old varieties are quite difficult to propagate. And in fact, we've um, been undertaking a um, propagation scheme for all of the, of the camellias here because you, you never know what might happen and so that, we, so that we've got backup plants for, these, uh, for all of these varieties uh, in the future. Uh-huh. Okay, and you, you mentioned uh, potting sheds, and I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but I'm imagining that might be where some of that stuff is going on. Well, actually, in the greenhouses beyond the potting ah. sheds. This is the perfect excuse then, really, to uh, talk about what we've got here uh, structurally, isn't it? We've mentioned the potting sheds. I think we'll be visiting those yes. in just a moment. Can we talk about this thing that we're in? Yes, you've got um, you've got a central dome, and below the central dome, you'll see there's a, a really rather lovely pebble mosaic. And on top of that is um, a white tub with a, um, a tall palm tree. And in fact, um, the, um, the tub you can see here is one that's been remade from early ones we saw in Lord Burlington's prints, um, uh, where he had citrus growing in them. And notice there are hooks on the side. And um, these were so that they could um, cart these very large pots about on, on carts. So, for example, they would have a citrus they'd put out on a terrace in the summer and then they'd bring it into an orangery in the winter to, to keep it free from frost and then either side from this this dome that i mentioned earlier you've then got um, two wings going either side and near the the windows you've got two slabbed benches and um, I remember being brought here by my parents as a small child and um, just coming sort of my head about the height of the sort of the first bench and seeing those full of spring flowers. And so this is the sort of vision you'll see in another couple of weeks' time here at Chiswick, as well as the camellias, because only sort of one of the camellias is, is in sort of full flower. The others are waiting for a couple of weeks until the start of the, of the camellia festival. The advantage of having the cover is it means they come into flower a little bit earlier also they don't suffer from from frosts because one problem with uh, camellias is that the beautiful flowers sort of go a rusty brown color when they get frosted so that is an advantage of having them um, under cover and it looks as though there's the i can see a sort of a pulley type uh, thing there does does the roof do something interesting um yes that's ventilation so the the art of managing a glass house is um heating to keep it warm and then ventilation to keep it uh, to keep it cool and on the outside we also have um, um, a wooden slatting um, which is uh, the summer we, we put down to, to provide some shade to also help it keep cool because camellias are basically a woodland plant and so they would fry in the um, open light if they didn't have some shade. And uh, I've just recently learnt this from our um, previous head gardener but either end of the uh, conservatory are two glass pavilions uh, which were designed to grow pineapples so uh, I rather love the image of lots of lovely pineapples growing in these glass pavilions at the end and the actual courtyard right outside um, uh, the back of the conservatory to the opposite side to the Italian uh, more formal garden was known as the melon ground one assumes because melons were perhaps grown there. Well, we'll come back in just a moment. We're going to get a word from our sponsor. And I, sp- I suspect we, we might be heading off towards the potting sheds. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. 
To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. We're here at Chiswick House and Gardens with me, Claire O'Brien, the director of Chiswick House and Gardens Trust. John Watkins, he's the head of gardens and landscape at English Heritage. And uh, you, you tickled my interest in your past, John, with the uh, idea of you uh, peeking over the ledge at the gardens here. And uh, I sort of wanted to find out what your path into your respective lines of work was. It's, it seems uh, tempting to imagine that it was very simply a, a sort of an early passion for gardening that's... Uh, has bloomed can I say no <laughs> yeah well a passion for plants and I think a passion for plants led to a passion for gardens and um, that environment and I think it's I think it's always early influences and I think this is the wonderful thing about historic gardens is that they are sort of special places and they've remained special because there have been design elements and planted elements that have made them stand out from, from, from other places and so um, that's why I'm so lucky to have my present job to where, where, do you, where do you get the, um, the, the kick from and maybe it's evolved as, as your career has evolved but is it sort of the hands on thing or is it a more conceptual thing being realised what's the, what's the draw? What's the draw? Well, I mean I think it, initially for me it was, a, it was the draw of plants um, I, what started me off as the age of 10 having to do a, a project on aphids and going and visiting the, the Natural History Museum. And up on the, the top floor of the Natural History Museum was a whole unit specialised on um, researching aphids. Um, and they were breeding them on the roof, probably to sort of populate the whole of London with greenfly. And um, there was one lady there who had a goldfish bowl full of Venus flytraps. And um, that is what sparked my interest in plants. Um, so I can sort of... I can my mind be there today. It's very, very clear. <laughs> From there, getting interested in other, other groups of plants. And um, my first job, I was an apprentice in the uh, restoration of the Temperate House at Kew. Uh-huh. Obviously, I did a really bad job because I'm having to uh, restore it again. Um, <laughs> well, <what> a, <laughs> I'm, I was just wondering whether I should make some pithy remark about the future of Chiswick Gardens, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Claire, what about you? What, what brings you to be doing the work you're doing here? Uh, um, a passion for the arts so well, and culture and heritage. So I... Um, uh, I've always been very, very enthusiastic about the arts, particularly theatre and um, works of art in stately homes. Uh, and I read history at university, and then I went into a, a theatre box office job when I uh, first graduated. But my work has always either been working in the arts or for charity. Uh, my last two jobs, I was at the Royal National Theatre and then at the Wallace Collection, which is a national museum in the centre of London, a London townhouse. So, again, what we were saying earlier about aristocrats, this was, this was the London townhouse of the Marquesses of Hartford. And within it is a very important collection of old master paintings, uh, so including Dutch paintings, of course, and French 18th century paintings and decorative arts, as well as a lot of princely arms and armour. I've always loved being surrounded by um, beautiful objects and beautiful environments. And the Wallace Collection, I think, is one of those uh, slightly overlooked places. I don't know why it is. It seems just slightly under some people's radar, so I'm, I'm glad to be able to give it an airing. Yeah, well, the lovely thing is that people who arrive always say, oh, this is a hidden gem, because partly because... They think they've just discovered it, which is great because for them they have if they're a first-time visitor. Um, but also because it's never too crowded, although you're in the middle of central London, all that hustle and bustle. Um, however, visitors have doubled um, over the last 12 years, and so more people are learning about it. Um, but I do urge all your listeners to go and enjoy it when they're not coming down to Chiswick. Yes, there's to- a definite order of business there. <laughs> Yes, when they're not coming down to Chiswick to enjoy these gardens and the house. Um, the house here at the moment is uh, open in the summer on, um, from Sunday to Wednesday. Um, and plan is for the trust to take over the management of the house over the next year. So after that, we hope that we'll be able to open more on more days throughout the year. So. Oh, well, there's uh, something interesting there then. What's, what's been the status quo until now? Well, it's um, uh, the way English Heritage uh, operate their properties. They tend to be open mainly in the summer months. That's quite normal for 
um, stately homes. Uh, but as this is in central London, I would be quite keen to extend the opening hours. We will, of course, give uh, further details of uh, all things uh, Chiswick House and Gardens at the end of the show in the normal way. It seems an opportune moment to drop the website in, which is where, of course, you can get all the uh, up-to-date information about, uh, well, not, not just this year's Camellia Festival, next year's, the year afters, and uh, lots of other things going on in between. And the, the site is? www.chgt org.uk. So that's CHGT for Chiswick House and Gardens Trust. I, I wonder if you were to think about things that didn't have a connection with nobility or aristocracy, what would you like to see um, given a little extra attention, uh, perhaps, by the, perhaps by the public, if not by English heritage itself? We're interested in, in all heritage. Uh, a few years ago, we um, uh, registered some allotments because they were an important part of um, culture in more than one way and um, always on the, uh, the lookout for, for places that um, are different and also um, tell a history of where we've come from and where we're going. Is there anywhere you'd like to see uh, preserved that, that doesn't have those uh, sort of uh, aristocratic connections? Gosh, that's, uh, that's put me on the spot. That's a tricky tricky question maybe maybe we could bank it and see uh, see, see what your subconscious does with it as we're as we're going through the interview yes okay bank it so i'm going to come back to you for at the end website details and uh, a, a place in london that uh, that could be also worthy of interest it could be the third on the list of uh, visiting spots for our, our listener should we uh, head through the place here and see what's on offer and of course, that's the big question, isn't it? If we're going to entice people to come down to this part of southwest London, we've, I hope, sketched out some of the interesting things to uh, see here. But what else is there that we haven't yet touched upon? Well, what I would like to, to touch upon, I've spoken about ventilators here, but actually how they heated the, um, uh, the glass house. Um, we're standing in front of um, uh, a big run of four six inch cast iron pipes. These are very serious looking. Very serious looking. And, and um, these um, are non operational, but they have been kept as part of the history of the site. But this wasn't the first he- um, heating system that was here. It was only sort of later on in the, um, in the, the 19th century that they developed the technology for building these um, long pipes that could hold um, hot water. Ah, so they're radiators? Um, effectively radiators, yep. We had radiators for plants before we ever had them for people's homes. So, you know, um, everyone that's sort of um, keeping warm in front of their radiator, they need to thank the technology that was developed for places like the Glass House at at, uh, Chiswick. A quick word of description here, because I'm seeing they're doing something very interesting at the end. As you've described, there's four of them together, so that a cross-section would be in a kind of a square shape, and they travel along this square shape, and they go around the corner, and then in that circular pavilion area, it curves round very elegantly under the side bench until it reaches the French doors at the back, at which point the top pipes curve round and become the bottom pipes and very neatly uh, flow back. And how, how is the hot water uh, well, being moved through these? Um, the, the original system that was developed was what's called a, a thermosiphon system. Um, what ha- they did was they had a, um, a coal-fired boiler in a pit at one end, big pipes, and um, that then heated the water, and the pipes slowly heated up. So they didn't heat up fast like our radiators do at home. They heated up, took a long time to heat up, and um, as um, heat rises, and so the pipes were put on an angle, so that they would slowly rise, and then um, uh, as it cools, it then comes down on the bottom pipe and works its way back to the boiler. And so it heats up slowly, but also cools down slowly. Um, there was a story of William Robinson, the, uh, the famous um, gardener, who I think fe- fell out with the um, family he was working for in Ireland and um, uh, decided to leave. And so one night he just um, uh, put out all the boilers. So it was quite warm when he left, but by the morning it would be freezing cold. So that was sort of the, the, the ultimate um, uh, ruin a gardener could cause on a family. Um, he later went on to become very popular journalist and, uh, and valued garden writer but um, that was a story he liked to tell but anyway that was a thermosiphon system he had but um, what's so special here at, at, at Chiswick is um, we have um, 
a number of other sorts of early heating systems. I mentioned that the, uh, this is a lean-to glass house built on a big wall. And um, that wall, um, if you look on the top of the wall, there are what look like rather nice pots sticking on the top of the wall. Actually, those are chimneys. There's a whole run of them running right the way along the top of the wall because this wall is full of few flues. So behind, on this back uh, wall, there are a number of fires, so they could light fires, so that this wall would then radiate heat back into the conservatory. How many of those are there along this wall? Um, Oh, there's at least six of them um, on, on each side. Well, that must uh, consume an awful lot of uh, firewood. That's, a, that's an intensive system. Oh, yeah, that is an intensive system. And they weren't quite happy with that. They thought they could do one better. So um, when we had a lot of this clear, we had archaeologists in to try and unpick this. And we found that a later system they introduced had a series of flues going underground. So a bit like a sort of a Roman hypercore system with hot air. They were trying this out at Chiswick as well. Why is so much innovation focused here? Well, I I mentioned earlier, um, the Duke of Devonshire um, with uh, Paxton, the great uh, head gardener up at Chatsworth, um, they were developing great technologies to be able to grow a wide range of plants. And so they were trying out different ways of of heating um, a glasshouse. Some were successful. But were they they very unusual in this level of innovation? Because they they sound like uh, gadget nuts of their time. Uh, That's exactly what they were. Um, And... um, they were sort of the, the top of the fashion. He had plenty of money, um, and that's how he chose to spend it, um, designing structures, finding new ways to grow these e- exotic plants. In fact, the structures where the whole glasshouse here didn't wasn't originally for. Um, for camellias, they had other um, more exotic plants, and, uh, and um, we mentioned earlier uh, there, there were pineapples also in here, and, and other crops. Um, but then as they introduced these different heating systems, they, either, they might not have liked those, um, uh, that scheme. So they um, had to change what, what they were growing. But if we go into the back sheds, you'll see the real workshop that led to this. Just before we go into the potting shed, um, I just want, we're passing two great big camellias, um, one of them blooming beautifully, a very pale pink incarnata. But I just wanted to say that uh, John mentioned earlier that we have volunteers in the gardens without whom we would not be able to maintain these gardens and the kitchen garden. And in early February, they come in and they clean every single leaf on all these camellias to get rid of the mealy bug and any other dirt or pest or, or dust that may have occurred over the last few months so literally every single leaf has been cleaned with a very light um, soap solution and water you soap and water that's right right okay so and they do look very glossy at they the do right i was i was going to ask if you wax them or something like that but that's probably a silly question but uh, okay so they can uh, photosynthesize it beautifully now and that's the bugs gone as well i've just while we're here i just want to slide around i can see one of these beautiful uh, blooms at uh, around about waist height and see what the, all the fuss is about so this is the incarnata it's a very very pale pink um it's a single bloom is it john a double i'm just looking at john he's the expert it's a double bloom so i just can't see two there and on our right is the middle middle mist red which is the tree i mentioned earlier which is very unique there's only one other in the world oh, you can see the the variation between the two of them right away the the, the first one we're looking at here the pale pink um is, is very um, very delicate and uh, very wide. The other, much more cabbagey in, in appearance, still very uh, very attractive, uh, but slightly tighter. I don't know if that's because they're just emerging. Now I can see a bloom at the back there. It looks a little meatier. So what we can see on them, um, you see some are still quite tight buds, and so we're still quite early. You see some here, little tight buds about the size of a um, about double the size of a pea that will uh, within the next two or three weeks become a full size uh, bloom and how long do they stay in bloom for um, hopefully the length of the camellia festival um, hopefully the length of the camellia festival yeah um, and um, one of the advantages of it perhaps being a little cooler the cooler it is the longer they'll last Mm. Um, when we've had very warm springs they tend to go over earlier and actually come into flower Um, other years we've actually had them in full full bloom at this time of the year so I think the 
the cool winds have helped to uh, uh, to keep them back a bit this year. But there is an advantage by the sounds of if you're interested in coming to the festival here, probably get on with it and get down here in the earlier weeks rather than the later ones. Yes, I think I think that that would be best in terms of to get the full force of the buds. We've been feeling the full force of the draft around our ankles and uh, still the rain comes down. I feel either I need to take advantage of the antiquated heating system, which ain't going to happen, or we need to get in the potting shed. <laughs> Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. We're passing through a sturdy-looking door to one side, down some stone steps, and there's uh, an interesting uh, kind of brick parquet flooring. And now I'm not sure what I was expecting, but uh, it doesn't seem to have much in the way of plants growing in here. No, no, no. Well, no. This was a, this was the sh- uh, the back sheds rather than the greenhouse. Um, and so, if you imagine, this was for maintaining the. Um, the whole garden estate when um, labour was cheap so there would be uh, a whole huge team of gardeners many more than we could ever afford uh, these days but um, what we can see here is actually one of the fireplaces but this is quite a grand fireplace if you can see here uh, where you can see the, the flue and uh, some of the other rooms along the back there would have been the, uh, the head gardener's shed which would have had um, an even smarter uh, fireplace and um, to keep the head gardener warm and then there would be um, tool sheds stores for, for seeds and um, for um, keeping other things dry but if we walk through here what I really wanted to show you is just through here we're passing by lots of potted shrubs here much smaller than the ones that we saw in the conservatory these are uh, yes, less than head height on what me. What we've just got um, in the protection of the shed here are actually um, uh, citrus trees which we place out in, in, in the summer. Um, and uh, we're on, on really using this as a, a winter orangery. We're keeping these plants uh, dry, uh, taking advantage of the light coming in through the windows, but keeping them nice and cool um, so they're just ticking over. So if you were to go to somewhere like Versailles, there you would see the uh, similar sort of um, structure in an embankment where these plants are kept really tight, just get a little bit of light but kept really cool. Um, so they're just ticking over over the winter. As it starts to get warmer, the light gets better. Um, then they'll be um, taken out to, to a glass house to, to start growing. But what I wanted to show you is uh, behind this you'll see a great big tank this is a, right, yes. a huge water tank that must be about 10 foot uh, long by about um, 8 foot deep. And, and the notable thing for me is that it's, uh, it doesn't start until almost shoulder height and then it, it uh, goes up uh, 2 or 3 feet from there. And it's a beautifully made stone tank, about 2 foot deep. And we don't know why it's there. Yep, there's one on the other side. But underneath it... Um, uh, there are more flues. Um, do you see there's a ch- uh, chimney breast up there? There's um, another flue there. And what we think is that these tanks may have been uh, put in place to uh, produce warm water because it was felt that watering, at one time watering plants with cold water might not have been ideal. So this is an example of, a, um, of an experimental greenhouse where they were trying out different things and um, this is one of their their experiments. Do, do gardeners keep good records generally uh, on a sort of historical level? Um, uh, many do. All good gardeners should keep a good diary. Um, unfortunately, we have no records for this, which is a, a great pity. Um, perhaps one day someone will find find the records of this in, in an archive. And indeed, who, who knows, we may have amongst the listening ears somebody who uh, might have a, a, a suggestion as to that. Please do uh, drop us a line if you've got an idea. That would be wonderful. I wanted to ask you, uh, just as we move into the... So, by the way, I, I love the atmosphere here. This is a wonderful place to be. These uh, oak beams above us and uh, solid brick materials around us, terracotta pots piled up. John, I wanted to ask you, as we move through, if we were to compare 
the uh, the sort of mindset of somebody doing your work with uh, that of another profession. I wonder what sort of person you've got to be in order to be successful when thinking about gardens. And to give an example of what I'm driving at, I've often found links between novel writing, for example, and architecture, where you're looking at structures and then filling in the detail. Your mind's got to be able to work on the macro and the micro at different times. Sometimes uh, I think of, for example, a, a chef that you need that level of artistry, but also there's a military element to it where you've got to be entirely disciplined. How would you disassemble the gardening mind? Well, I think um, a gardening mind um, needs to be... Uh, you both need to be um, a scientist. You need to um, understand how um, biological organisms are reacting to their environment. Um, you need to um, understand those organisms... Uh, as individuals and understand how they might work in communities you've also got to be an artist because you need to put them together in different combinations Uh, you've also got to understand time because if you think of um, an architect or an artist they produce their picture they produce their structure they walk away Um, as soon as we've produced something it changes what we're doing is constantly changing. Uh, the environment that we're working in is constantly changing. So um, it, it, is, it is an artwork that is constantly needing to be uh, adapted. And in um, my job with uh, historic gardens, we need to um, get into a sort of mindset of how the garden was designed and how it was managed historically and then be creative within that milieu. And um, in a way, we're sort of, we are um, fighting time. Uh, And um, I always think of a landscape as being, um, or how a landscape is working is a bit like looking, if you open the back of a fob watch, you can see all these different cogs moving at different speeds. So you've got the the second hand moving uh, very perceptively, you know, quite, quite fast. And then um, that you can't even see the hour. Um, cog moving and a, a landscape is like that you've got your um your bulbs uh your seasonal bulbs that are coming up one day and uh, dying and uh, uh, a week later the flower fading um or, which is something that's very very quick or annuals that are just there for half a season um equally you could have a big oak tree that could be there for up to 600 years and so in your mindset you've got a, a design that has got elements that have um, different time frames. And so it's, uh, I think there's few artists that have to work in four dimensions in that way. And, and presumably, of course, the perspective of the person looking at what you've created is, isn't static. I often think of a garden as being a static thing, but of course you, you tend to experience it moving through it, don't you? You're moving through it, and you're moving through, through time. Um, some of our, our most useful visitors to gardens are regular visitors who come every week and because they're coming each week they're noticing the changes whereas if you're in the garden all the time uh, uh, you don't and actually how garden visitors tend to differ to museum or house visitors is is that um, often garden visitors will come um, more regularly to see to see those to see those changes and um which is, which is uh, excellent you know they can be our eyes and ears mm. So um, one of the quirky elements for me about the history of these potting sheds uh, or back sheds, as uh, John perhaps more correctly calls them, uh, is that um, somebody used to live in one of them, one of one section, in order to keep the boiler sustained. Um, now, whether that's true or if it's just one of those hearsay apocryphal tales, um, but I think it's rather charming because, as John says, there's, there's, there are these fireplaces and then there's there was well our main boiler for um our offices uh, is still here in the potting shed um but i like the idea of the person responsible for literally stoking the boiler the old boiler the coal boiler lived next to it as well oh, i can explain a little bit more about in my mind um, living re- re- represented leisure which of course i thought there was there was none of that here um in the victorian period often it would be the uh, apprentices or the journeyman gardeners um may had had a room at one end and the reason that, um uh, and so that was their sort of a, 
accommodation that came with them but but one of their job was keeping the keeping the boiler going so they were often sort of set next to the boiler which had advantages because it meant um, they weren't freezing cold good estates would employ quite a l- number of apprentices um, give them good lodgings um, feed them provide them with education not all were as good as that but yes they, they were absolutely key in keeping the boiler going because if you think about it you've got a structure which um, would be the equivalent of millions of pounds these days and the plant collections um, as much these were pl- they were paying for people to go all over the world to collect plants and seeds and then coming back and growing these and growing these plants and then swapping them so you know you've you've got a, a terrific investment and um, having people that can be looking after them properly and try, trying to find out how to grow these things mm. And a bit of on-site security as yes. well as the uh, yeah, as well as looking after the plants mm. in the other way. Uh, behind us, you, you pointed out as we were passing through an instrument here that looks like a cross between a lawn roller and a medieval piece of torture equipment. What, I'm, okay, I'm going to have a go. I think that that would be for rolling across the lawn to stick holes in it to uh, ventilate it. And you've got it in one. Well, how about that? doesn't look like it's been doing that for a little while though we could use it on the cricket pitch which indeed we haven't even mentioned yet but there's a got, you haven't seriously got a cricket pitch with flying cricket balls near this lovely glass conservatory uh, well not too close to the glass conservatory but in um, the, uh, the sort of diametrically opposed corner of the estate um, we do have a cricket field um, and it is used throughout the summer by uh, a local cricket club and their colts and also um, companies who work locally uh, come and have corporate cricket matches here there's a cricket pavilion built in the 1950s i urge anyone to come on a summer sunday or saturday to see a good game of cricket being played um in addition to that sort of on the other side there are uh, lovely walled gardens uh, we've already mentioned the kitchen garden but there are other walled gardens and we do stage um, a may fair celebration and a pumpkin uh, event uh, at either either end of the summer. A pumpkin event. A pumpkin fair, yes. An afternoon of pumpkin activities, ending. I know up, better than to ask. Ending up with some pyrotechnics. I think one year you had the red barrows, didn't you? <laughs> that has just made my podcast, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Um, I've ju- also, I've just noticed, and the, the rain has let up for the first time today. I've just noticed out of the window here, you've got a boat all ready to go. Is, is this a pessimistic outlook? That, that's so we can make a quick escape if necessary, I think. Well, I, <laughs> well, I, I know you do have to make uh, a quick escape, John. And, oh, I've just noticed the rain started again. Um, I know you're going back to Herefordshire. That's right, yes, yes. Um, what are you? Uh, what are you thinking? You're going to be seeing there in terms of water. Um, well, I was. I went past Ross and Wye yesterday. It was um, very picturesque setting uh, with a sea of water around it. So you couldn't work out what was what were fields and what was river. Well, we can only hope that uh, things don't get any more serious than they already are. Of course, uh, no laughing matter for a number of people in in this town and uh, many others around the country. Um, on the other side of the rain, we have the Camellia Festival and uh, those details again of the website. The website is www.chgt.org.uk. The Camellia Festival opens on the 1st of March and runs all month to the 30th. So do please come and enjoy our beautiful camellias. And bring your own dinghy. <laughs> <laughs> and before we go, we, uh, we promised that we were going to come back, Claire, to you for your recommendation of a place in London that uh, might be of interest that, that perhaps isn't on people's radars, needs preserving. Well, it's not a specific place, but um, it's thanks to um, one of the visits I made on the excellent Open Houses weekend. And that is that uh, it's so wonderful when councils or individuals restore old shop fronts and all the fittings and the decoration within old shops. Uh, And I know some councils are very good at trying to return back to the original signage. But I think the old shop fronts and the old glass make a street, a high street, look so much more attractive and appealing. Well, that gets my vote, certainly. (laughs) And I think it will bring in uh, lots of Hollywood film teams. That's true. <laughs> well, Claire, John, thanks very much for having us here today. Fine. Pleasure. Thank you. My heart aches for some far off 
And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Claire O'Brien and John Watkins. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea, quite appropriately. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.